There were two primary factors that I was looking for when I began my college search as a junior in high school. I already knew that I wanted to go to school in Chicago, so that was a no-brainer. Uh, I just had to iron out the other details, you know. First, I wanted to go to a Christian university. Since I had received my calling into ministry during my high school time, and I knew that I wanted to major in something along the lines of youth ministry or biblical studies, something like that. Uh, and second, I wanted to go to a small enough school that I could play college baseball. Now, I wasn't all that good by any means, but, you know, I was on my high school varsity team. Uh, but I remember whenever I went on my first tour to North Park, I sat down with the uh, with the baseball coach, and we started to have a conversation about playing and what that would look like along with the major that I was intending on going into. And what he told me at the time really kind of astounded me. He basically said, I'd love to have you play, but I need 50% of your time, if not more. He said that means sacrificing internships, job offers, and most of your breaks from school. He said that I could most likely do both, but that I probably couldn't do both well. Now, there was a documentary that was put out uh, just this last month that followed the journeys of five NCAA college athletes as they navigated this major transition in their life, uh, trying to balance both schoolwork and their athletic responsibilities. And what caught my attention about this particular documentary was not necessarily the premise of college athletics uh, or the catchy title, student athlete. No, it was the first sentence in the trailer a woman's voice came over the pictures and, said, and she said, don't even worry about the education. Just do what you need to do on the field. Now, this is not to disparage by any means all student athletes. Uh, there are many who are able to balance both extracurriculars and their schoolwork very well. But for others, the pressures to identify as an NCAA athlete tend to supersede their status as a student. One takes more priority than the other. They may pay some lip service to the fact that first you're a student and then you're an athlete. But as one analyst said, reflecting on his time during college sports, the phrase student athlete is often an oxymoron. And as Christians, we can kind of understand this, right? I mean, isn't it Jesus who taught that we cannot serve two masters? Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We can't be equally devoted to two things. It's just not in our human nature. One will always pull our attention and our efforts away from the other. And when our priorities become distorted, we can often forget what is of the utmost importance, what is so foundational and formational to who we are. And this is what, exactly what Paul is attempting to do in our passage today. This section is near the beginning of his letter to the Colossians, uh, an ethnically and socially diverse group of people uh, consisting of both Gentile and Jewish Christians. And earlier in the letter, we learned that the Colossians had come to faith 
through the faithful testimony of a man named Epaphras, one of Paul's representatives to the church within the Lycus Valley. And while Paul is imprisoned in Rome, he is visited by Epaphras, who tells him of this dangerous spiritual state that the Colossian church faces. Many are beginning to relapse into their pagan ways of thinking and acting and accepting false teachings, especially regarding the person of Christ. The Colossians, over time, began to make concessions regarding their theology, concessions regarding their practice of faith that began to distort the Christian message altogether. So Paul begins his letter by setting the record straight. If you notice, the the passage we read today starts in verse 15. This is right from the get-go. Paul is setting the record straight and places Christ right at the center. He's the focal point that this whole letter is going to be about. And it's actually one of the Christological highlights of the entire New Testament. Such high theology that Paul has about Christ. It's just so beautiful, actually. And a good number of scholars will actually refer to this passage that we read this morning as the Colossian hymn because of its rich and deep theology in such few words. And it's possible that this could have been a pre-existing hymn that Paul was uh, just reappropriating and using to his benefit for his ministry to the Colossian church. But we don't really know for sure one way or the other which is why my professors at school always tell me this is why you cite your sources. But either way, he gets his point across. It's all about Christ. And only Christ. In our time together this morning, we're going to look deeper at these three key titles that Paul gives to the Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. First, he's the image of God. Second, he's before all things. And lastly, the title is that he is the head of the church. And then we'll turn our attention to what this means for us. What does this mean as God's people to respond to these titles? So Paul begins his rebuke of the Colossian heresy by first proclaiming that the Son is the image of the invisible God. If the Colossians truly want to know the Father, they need only look to the Son. And we see this in Jesus' conversation with Philip uh, in John 14. Philip comes to him and says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answers him, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. See, the Son's status as the image of the invisible God shows us two key components 
which Paul is bringing out in this passage. First, he has a shared reality with the Father, a special relationship to the Father. And second, we see this through his actions. So first, his answer to Philip begins with this identification of a mutual indwelling. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. They work together. They do not do things that are apart from one another's will. So when Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, he is saying that everything that Jesus is, is because of God, because he is in the Father and the Father is in him. It sounds a little redundant the more we say it over and over again, but in this short phrase, he's saying that this is God in the flesh, a visible manifestation of the deity for all of us to see and all of us to model. And then Jesus goes even further and backs this up through his actions. He says, at least believe on the evidence of the actions themselves. And what are those actions? He heals the sick, clothes the poor, and he does the will of God. And this title, Image of God, would most would almost immediately draw his audience's attention back to the Genesis account of creation. Whenever I throw out the term image of God, for most of you, that probably sounds familiar. Because God created us, both man and woman, in the image and likeness of him. But unlike Adam, who failed to do the will of God, this image, Christ, perfectly fulfills everything that humanity could not. Which is often why Paul will refer to Christ as the second Adam, the perfect Adam, the final Adam. We know that this image isn't merely cosmetic. It wasn't just Christ doing the things that we could not because we get twice affirmed both in verse 19 and then again in chapter 2 verse 9 that Christ has all the fullness of the deity dwelling in bodily form. See, the Son isn't similar to God. He isn't like the Father. He's not just a moral teacher that lived an exemplary life for us to follow. No, he is the deity of God in bodily form. And in one simple phrase, Paul affirms both the full divinity and the full humanity of the Son. But he's not done yet. That was sentence one. See, he goes on and says that the Son is before all things. Now, this phrase could have both a temporal and a positional meaning to it. Uh, And I think Paul is employing both in there. And by that I mean that Christ came before all things that exist, and he comes before everything that is present today. You see what I'm saying here? See, as John the Evangelist right? he, Christ, the Word, was with God in the beginning because he was God. Again, affirming that Jesus is really God. But he was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made. See, it combats both the heresy facing the Colossian church and a later 4th century heresy known as Arianism that basically argued that there was a time when Christ did not exist. 
that Christ was the first creation that God made. And Paul sets the record straight. He says, no, Christ was with God in the beginning because he has existed before all things. And then our response comes in the positional meaning. Our passage uses an interesting word, and it only occurs twice in the entire letter of Colossians, and it appears both of those times in our passage today. The title is Firstborn. And the first is to say that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. And then the second is to say that he's the firstborn from the dead. The title echoes the wording of the Old Testament Psalms where God is speaking of the Davidic king to come. In Psalm 89, he says, And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of all the kings of the earth. See, not only is Christ God in the flesh, but he is also Israel's long-awaited king who will reign forever and ever. This title speaks of his supremacy, that he is above all things, before all things, that no one on earth is above him, and he receives all the status that comes with being a firstborn in that society, all the inheritance of the earth and of heaven. He's got it all. But then what does he do with it? Does he hold on to that authority, to that power, to that inheritance? No. Instead, he uses his status, he uses this inheritance given to him to reconcile all things under his rule, both in heaven and on earth, back to himself through his blood shed on the cross. And what kind of king would do that for his subjects? What kind of king would lower himself from the highest of highs to our state and die for the people who he ruled over. This is the Davidic king. This is the shepherd king who willingly lays down his life for his sheep. Not only did the king lay down his life for the flock, but then he rose victoriously from the grave, defeating death once and for all. So the second use of this term, firstborn, is that he's the one who initiates the resurrection. He's the first one to be born from the dead in order that we too might rise again at the end of days. And it is only through him that we have life everlasting. See, from the beginning to the end, from before creation to the very end of days when Christ returned, Christ is holding everything together. I love the song we sang this morning and And it sounds like Bonnie and I really were playing off each other well. uh, Because in one of the songs that we sang this morning, it talked from the beginning to the end. It's all a part of God's plan. See, the risen and living Christ has an active role in sustaining our universe today. And we know this to be true because he is affirmed as the head of our body, the church. See, Paul is employing another metaphor here, one that kind of makes sense to us in a lot of ways. 
the head controls the body. So if Christ is the head and we are the body being the church, then by nature we are connected to him. And as one commentator puts it, Christ becomes the locus of the church's unity and coherence, the source of the church's sustenance and direction. See, he's the reason we do what we do. Every move we make, every fluid motion that the body does and works together, he's the reason why we are able to function as a body. And it shows us how we're to relate to other members of the body. Paul talks about this metaphor again to his letter, in the letter to the Corinthians, saying that the hand cannot say to another part of the body, I don't need you. Because we're all members of the body underneath the head, who is Christ. And then we come to the big shift in verse 20. And while I love the NIV, I think the ESV does a really good job at capturing kind of the drama of this shift. And after talking all about Christ uh, in leading up, in verse 21, we get this shift. So we're talking about Christ, Christ, the Son, the Son, the Son. We get to verse 21, and the shift goes to, and you. Notice the emphasis in the drama. And that's a plural you, by the way. That's a y'all. See, and many of us, including myself, might tune out until this part of the sermon because we want to know, what, okay, what does this mean for me? What is the text saying to me? Which character am I supposed to be in the text? Oh, it said you? That must be me. We wait to see what everything has to do in terms of us. But when these are our responses to the text and to the incredible work that Christ has done, then we're like the student athlete that pays lip service, trying to serve two masters. We want to split our time between Christ and ourselves. Because we can't serve both, we'll often fall into the temptation of self-service, of coming to church, to our Bible study, our personal reading of Scripture with a me focus. What is the text saying to me? Not to us. Not fully digesting the work that Christ has done. Because it's not about me. It never has been about me. And it's never been about you. See, it's all about Christ. And if we don't start with the Son and who he is, we can't move into what he has done for us and how we are to live in response to him. You see this distinction there? See, notice that Paul's entire discussion from verses 21 through 23 is still all about Christ. We don't get a big shift in, let's talk about Christ now, let's talk about you. Everything that is you-focused is looked at through the lens of Christ. See, yes, it talks about us and our faith, but our faith in what? It's our faith in what Christ has already done and who he forever will be. See, our orthodoxy, our right belief, leads us into orthopraxy, how we are supposed to act and respond rightly to the work of God. We can't separate the two. We can't skip over the gospel 
because we've heard it a thousand times. We've prayed the sinner's prayer and we're good. Because if Christ isn't at the center of our worship, then we have nothing at all. In John 15, Jesus affirms this and says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Not live, not breathe, not move. It is only by him, in him, and through him that we ever have hope of being reconciled to him. We can't serve the true master, the son, while serving the master of our own desire to be self-righteous. When we begin with Christ, our mission gets bound up in God's redemptive work for this world. See, this is the gospel that has been preached to us from the beginning. Just like the same gospel that has been preached to the Colossian church. They've heard it. They've internalized it. I'm not preaching a new gospel by any means here. This is an alternative gospel. And my hope is that we continue in the faith. That we continue from what has already been rooted deep inside of us. And through identifying with the person of Christ and what he has done, that motivates us to participate in his redemptive work for all this world. See, college athletes always do the best when they realize the incredible opportunity that has been given to them. That they're, a part of, they're able to be a part of something much bigger than themselves. It's when they realize how much has been given to them that motivates them to press on, to fight when things get tough, to struggle with gratitude and appreciation for the incredible gift given to them. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, our Father, we are so thankful for your work, for your Son who is above all things, before all things. And we come to you with gratitude and praise for your mighty works, how you have loved us so. May we get wrapped up in your redemptive work and participate in your ministry for this world. We pray this in your name. Amen.